0: God, our greatest need is to see our need of you. Help us to feel the need of your continued saviorhood. And cry with Job, I am vile. With Peter, I perish. With the publican, be merciful to me a sinner. What we need in this hour is beyond what a mere man can supply. Would you please be gracious to us and make the book live among us. There is in this auditorium a spiritual battle going on for the attention, the minds, and the hearts of those listening. There is more going on here than meets the eye. So we need unseen help. Spiritual aid for a spiritual battle. We stand in awe of your otherness, your holiness. We confess our sinfulness, our transgressions. We come to thee for forgiveness, for cleansing, for removal. We have great sins, but we have a greater Savior. We plead the blood. Now, Lord, use this good text and my feeble efforts in it to build your church. May your strength be evident in my weakness this day. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Paul is going to speak to the church at Corinth regarding all of life. The wide spectrum of topics covered is (laughs) quite surprising. He'll speak about resting in the ethnicity God chose for you. He'll address if you should circumcise your baby boy. He'll talk about those who are filled with anxiety. And chart a path for you to be free from anxiety. Those of you who do not enjoy your job, it's a dread. This text speaks to you. If you are not content with your station in life, where you live, how far you've progressed, what what you've accomplished, there is for you in the text help. We even have instructions from those considering marriage. Or those already engaged to be married. Paul speaks to married couples. Marriage is hard, and responsibilities are piling up on you. You're feeling divided, spread thin. Paul is not surprised by any of this. For widows wondering if they should remarry, come to the text. For retirees wondering what to do with their time, come to the text. For those losing purpose in life, lacking motivation, why am I here? Come to the text. The title of this exposition, All of Life for All of God. There are two movements in the text Nothing in life prevents you from worship of God. That's verses 13 through 24. All of life propels you to worship God. That's verses 25 through 40. Two movements. Nothing in life prevents you from worship of God. All of life propels you to worship God. Paul didn't write to entertain. He wrote to change beliefs to change behaviors, to change perspectives, to change mindsets. And may this text have that effect upon us. Verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. Let's stop there. This is an overarching principle. If you get this, you get the passage Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. Paul will flesh this out in a variety of ways, but it's always the same principle. Lead the life the Lord has assigned to you. God doesn't want you to say, I don't want this life. I want another life. Lead the life that the Lord has assigned to you. This was written to the Corinthians originally. But it is a universal command for all Christians in all times and all circumstances. This Pauline rule frames the entire passage. The life that God has allotted to you is for all of Him. All of life for all of God. Paul continues in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Paul wants the Corinthians to see their status in life as an assignment from God. God doesn't want you to always be trying to escape your assignment. He wants you to be content in your assignment. God's people then and now fight discontentment. And this is why you need to be reminded. As long as you are there, it is God's assignment for you. Paul finishes verse 17. This is my rule in all the churches. (laughs) In other words, don't don't think I'm being harder on you than others. I give this to all the churches. Paul will begin to address this discussion in a question and answer format. Verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision circumcision was a required sign that separated the Jews from the Gentiles a surgery on male private parts that God commanded in the Old Testament he wanted it as one of the marks that separated the people of God now it, it was more than that it was a sign of the covenant but, but it separated you know what circumcision is I didn't bring pictures but, but it's not clean it's bloody. It's gory. And there were obviously men in the church at Corinth who had been circumcised before conversion. And now they wanted to remove it. And you might ask, how is that even possible? There was a method to conceal circumcision. A procedure to draw skin forward to remove the mark of circumcision. Some dispersed Jews carried this out. The Roman encyclopedist Celsus in the first century wrote a detailed description of this surgical procedure called decircumcision. I'll spare you the reading. Now, there were other people in the church at Corinth wanting to do the opposite. They were not circumcised and they wanted to be. Paul says, were you uncircumcised when you were called? Don't seek circumcision. Paul instructs Both parties. It is irrelevant whether you are circumcised or not. It's inconsequential in God's sight. Circumcision is no longer an important thing that marks the people of God. Paul is not against circumcision in and of itself or for it in and of itself as a surgical procedure. He doesn't like it as a faith procedure. He wants to clarify a repercussion of Christ's work on the cross. He's simply using circumcision as a a tool to clarify that truth. Christ's work on the cross did something circumcision could not do. It truly set his people apart. Circumcised, uncircumcised, Christ made these distinctions obsolete. We get asked here from time to time, should we circumcise our baby boy? Doesn't the Bible say something about that? Here's what the Bible says about that, verse 19. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So do what you want to do with your baby boy. If it's a thing in your family tree, do it. If it's not, don't. Have him circumcised, don't have him circumcised. But absolutely tell him that Christ fulfilled what the circumcision always pointed toward. Paul wants to emphasize these are not matters crucial for your relationship with God. Apparently, these Corinthians had a mistaken assumption that a change in status reaps spiritual benefit. They thought circumcision or decircumcision might spruce up one's image before God. Now, what is Paul saying at the core? If you're an Israelite, don't try to become a Gentile. Then flip it. If you're a Gentile, don't try to become an Israelite. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Jew is nothing. Gentile is nothing. Ethnic barriers are broken down in Christ. Which leads us to this truth. Don't fret or boast about your ethnic distinctives. They are of little importance to God. Don't fret or boast about your ethnic distinctives. They are of little importance to God. Being in Christ changes everything. Outward ethnic distinctions no longer matter as they once did. John Piper says, and I quote, We say white is beautiful, black is beautiful, red is beautiful, yellow is beautiful, therefore don't try to switch cultures. Paul says white is nothing, black is nothing, red is nothing, yellow is nothing, but keeping the commandments is everything. Therefore, don't try to switch cultures, ethnicities, or social distinctions, end quote. Your ethnicity is never going to make you feel like you belong. In the end, God is going to have some from all ethnicities worshiping around his throne. God no longer says, I have a people, they are all of one nation, Israel. God now says, I have a people, and they are of every nation and ethnicity. Proof positive that nothing in life prevents you from worship of God. Not your ethnicity, not your job. Paul says, church member, God assigned this ethnicity to you. And it will not prevent you from worshiping God. Salvation is not through ethnicity or some religious observance. Salvation is through Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross. So, church member, God assigned this ethnicity to you. It will not prevent you from worshiping God. Then he says, church member, God assigned this job to you, and it will not prevent you from worshiping God. Verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition. Now, you could write here job or station. Each one should remain in the condition, the job, the station, in which he was called. Now, of course, this is not saying if you were a drug dealer, stay a drug dealer. Or if you were a prostitute, stay a prostitute. He's saying if you were a lawyer, now you are a Christian lawyer. If you were a plumber, now you are a Christian plumber. Paul will address the bottom tier station in life. The bottom tier job to illustrate that fact. Verse 21. Were you a bond servant when called? Let's pause here. Many in the church at Corinth would have answered out loud, yes! Corinth was the center for buying and selling slaves. The law permitted slavery. Conservative estimates state that one-third of the population were slaves. One in every three people in the church at Corinth were slaves. If the church was an accurate representation of the city. How am I supposed to be a follower of Christ when I'm being beat over here? Paul continues, Do not be concerned about it. Slavery is no roadblock to worshiping God. As miserable as it was, there was nothing that kept one from worshiping God while in shackles. It has no impact on your ability to honor Christ. If God has called you as a slave, he will give you the grace to live as a slave. Many of Jesus' followers would be enslaved for life. Paul is meeting them where they are in their current situation. Slavery presents no obstacles to walking faithfully with Christ. Paul says, in fact, you can serve Christ through your slavery. He continues, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to it. In other words, I don't want to discourage you from seeking your freedom. Also, I don't want you consumed with a quest for freedom. Paul does not not mean a, a change in status is prohibited. He says seek freedom if possible. If freedom presents itself, do it. If it doesn't, don't let it trouble you. Now, you don't receive that well, do you? We live in a context where we can protest and redress our government. That is not where the Corinthians lived. And we need this emphasis today. This emphasis that says you can follow Jesus no matter what the law. Your freedom is not the most significant fact about you. Salvation is. One station in society is meaningless in God's eyes. Slavery can't keep you from coming in or from staying in. You are not an ineffective follower of Christ in this station. Verse 22, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. (laughs) I like this. Paul employs paradoxical language. After all, slaves are free people in Christ. God says, you've been liberated from the slavery of sin, and that's all that's necessary for worshiping me. You don't have to be liberated from the slavery of men, just sin." And in due course, when the king returns, all slaves will be free. Paul continues, verse 22. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Now, it's important for you to know that the Bible doesn't view slavery as morally neutral. Slavery is a demonic plot to reverse redemption. Slavery is a demonic plot to reverse redemption. You were bought and paid for by Christ. And Satan tries to buy you and pay for you with men. Now notice the extremes. Bound but unbound. Unbound but bound. Bound but unbound. If you're a slave, you are free in Christ. Unbound but bound. If you're free, you are a slave of Christ. Verse 23, you were bought with a price. Paul inserts this key that unlocks the argument. Don't spend all your days arguing for your rights. You don't have any rights. You belong to Christ. Verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Paul chooses these two topics, circumcision and slavery, to undergird the force behind his teaching. The first has to do with ethnic distinctions, circumcision. And the second has to do with social distinctions, slavery. Don't concern yourself with ethnic or social distinctions. Your social status now means nothing, zero, naught. Paul reiterates in verse 24 what was given in verse 17 and 20. Look, statement of the basic principle. That was in verse 17. Remain in the condition you were called. He gave an example and then he gave a a rationale. Circumcision and then the rationale. In verse 20, we have a restatement of the basic principle. Remain in the condition you were called. Then we have an example, slavery. The exception, try to seek try try to seek your freedom if possible, and then the rationale, 22 through 23. Then again, we have a restatement of the basic principle in verse 24 for a third time. Remain in the condition in which you were called. Nothing in your life prevents you from worshiping God, including your job, your assignment. Again, verse 24, and whatever condition each was called, there let him remain Notice these two words, would you mark them? With God. With God. Which leads us to this truth God is with you in difficult and and uncomfortable situations. God is with you in difficult and uncomfortable situations, uncomfortable assignments. He said, I would have never picked this position. I would have never picked this environment in which to labor. You don't know the toxicity I face every day. I'm not the only one who hates this job. Everyone who has been in this job hates it. I'm in a long line of people that this job is killing. I imagine the slaves in the church at Corinth could say the same thing, but with no hyperbole. Paul wanted them to know every time you clock in, every time you swing a hammer, Every time you complete a form, God is with you. God says when you get yelled at, I am there. When you get scorned and passed over time after time, I am with you. When we discover that our assignment is less than ideal, we remind ourselves that God is sovereign and faithful in our current situation. God is sovereign and faithful in our current situation. Our station in life is not a surprise to him. He is faithful in the midst of whatever your assignment. The only thing that sustained these newly converted Corinthian slaves was the sovereignty of God and the faithfulness of God. It's the only truth that sustained them and it's the only truth that will sustain you. It's the only doctrine that will roll you out of bed every morning and keep you high-stepping into the week. Now, let's get to some pointed implications from the text. Don't hate the job that God has assigned to you. Don't hate the job that God has assigned to you. And you might say, my working conditions are not conducive for my growth as a Christian. I like seeing how Paul brings theology to the workplace, to the workplace of church members. He he looks at all these church members who work some of the most mundane, boring, hard, unideal, hopeless jobs. And he says, I have the antidote for despair and menial jobs. Paul intentionally chose the lowest of all professions and called it service to Christ. When you flip those burgers at McDonald's, you are working God's assignment. When you ride that tractor on the farm, you are doing God's work. When you fix that computer problem to help processes go more smoothly, you are doing the Lord's task. When you change that diaper for the 26th time that day and vacuum that floor for the 6th time, you are working for God. You can serve Christ in all these vocations because this is what God has called you to do. You say, I'm a a paper pusher. I don't matter. You are pushing those papers as a calling from the Lord. When you change that oil, he puts you under that car. He puts you behind that parts desk. When you go to your office and, and paperwork is stacked very high, and your lazy employees show up late again, remember, this is the station where God has placed you. Don't do what the Corinthians were evidently doing, going around blaming their job for why they couldn't serve the Lord. There's fruitlessness and waiting for a better opportunity to serve. God says, I apportioned this job to you. I dealt this job to you. These are the thoughts behind the word assigned. Let's add to that. Don't always look to leave the assignment God has given you. Some people are always looking to change jobs. I'm not against advancement. I'm not against taking a better job with better pay and more time at home. But 91% of millennials expect to stay at their jobs for less than three years. And you say, well, I mean, I'm not surprised. It's because they're millennials and they're the vermin of the earth. (laughs) Well, the average worker, no matter the age, stays at his job for 4.4 years. Don't always be searching for that perfect niche job, bloom where you are planted. To clarify, I am not, nor is the text, condemning all job changes. Paul's concern is not to condemn job changes, but to teach you that you can have fulfillment in Christ, whatever your job is. Now, the Reformers love this text. You know why? Because becoming a Christian does not negate your vocation in life. They were pushing back against the Roman Catholic view that only the priests worked for God. They were the more devoted. They, they were the more valuable. The presence of God makes any secular work the work of God. This gave meaning to vocation. You can work a secular job, but it's still working for God. These reformers use this verse to rescue a theology of work. Just like your pastors are working for God, you are working for God. I've known two specific multimillionaires whom Christ saved, and they were under teaching that did not emphasize the validity of every vocation. And both men came to a point where they wrestled with going into ministry. They both pursued ministry and then came to the conclusion that they were gifted at making money and giving money to the, to the Lord's work. And that's what they both do now. Young guys who, who love the Bible and love evangelism, maybe you should drop everything and go into ministry. Or maybe you should continue to work your job for the glory of God. Anything I can talk you out of, you were never meant to go into. Nothing in life prevents you from worship of God. Not your ethnicity, not your job. Now, all of life propels you to worship God. Singleness, marriage. Paul goes back and forth between the two. There is no clean division, a a single section and then a married section. No, they bleed into one another and then circle back around. Verse 25. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. The church had written to Paul asking him questions. Paul uses this formula, now concerning, to introduce each new question. This is the new question Some of the engaged couples in the church wanted to know if they should go through with their weddings. Now, to give you a heads up, Paul does premarital counseling like Sarah and I do premarital counseling. I think half of the people we've done premarital counseling with, the couples that we've advised, ended up calling off the wedding. Look, Sarah and I just give them reality. I I think all those individuals are glad they called off the wedding, but needless to say, when we open the new counseling center over here very soon, I am not slated to be one of the counselors. (laughs) I'm picturing in the text Maybe someone torn between going forward with or canceling the planned marriage. There's a social expectation to go through with it. To the engaged couples, Paul says, I have no word from the Lord. Now, he's not saying his own words are inconsequential. This statement simply means that Jesus never spoke. He never spoke about what Paul is about to speak on. What Paul, while Paul gives his judgment, the Holy Spirit decides to inspire that judgment. That's why we have it today. Verse 26: I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Considering the circumstances, I think you should call off the wedding. I think it's best that you remain single. Now we don't know what this present distress is. It's some type of crisis. The nature of it is debated. It could be economic upheaval, or it could be a famine. Historians say Corinth was going through a famine at this time. Tony Morita thinks they are being squeezed. It's hard to put food on the table. This could be a wave of persecution. Nero's persecution was forthcoming. Christians would be slaughtered in mass publicly. Maybe this is the motive behind Paul's counsel. You don't want to have kids and have your sons taken into captivity and your daughters sold into prostitution. As Paul weighed the pros and cons of getting married under persecution, he thinks you should avoid it. These things tend to intensify for those who are married. Early historical records remind us that Corinth provided one of the earliest Christian martyrs, a man by the name of Erastus, who was mentioned in the last chapter of this book, Fox's Book of Martyrs reveals that he died by cruel persecution. He was one of Paul's first converts. It was some type of trouble. Something maybe unique to Corinth and the surrounding area. Possibly it was just local. It could have been more mundane than all of that and just referring to the regular troubles of life. Paul says, look, you're single. When the high seas are raging... It's not time to change ships. It's good for a person to remain as he is. I think Paul's preference stemmed from his own unique circumstances. Every time he was beat with a rod and stoned with rocks, he was thankful he didn't have a wife and child facing the same persecution. It's been said, man is a hero in himself, but is a coward when he thinks of a widowed wife and his orphan children. Verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek to be bound. The perfect tense indicates settled states. If you're married, don't leave your spouse. If you're not married, don't seek to be married. His counsel is simple and common sense filled. It's unclear how Paul viewed breaking betrothals. Roman betrothals were not near as serious as Jewish betrothals, but it seems he is saying, you are not bound. You don't have to go through with this. Verse 28, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. In other words, if you don't follow my advice and you get married, it's not a sin. 28 continues, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles And I would spare you that. Marriage implies responsibilities and times of distress. Marriage is ordained by God, but it does not solve all problems. It brings more. Single adults, marriage presents all sorts of distresses. Paul wants to spare you of them. Marriage presents all sorts of distresses. Paul wants to spare you of them. If you do get married, you take on additional stress. Paul goes on to compare advantages and disadvantages for marrieds and singles. Singleness is less distressing. Singles can expect less troubles. There are problems that will attend marriage because that is the way real life works. Remaining single does avoid those types of concerns, responsibilities, troubles, and issues. I think it was Francis Bacon who said, Children sweeten labors, but make misfortunes more bitter. Paul writes in verse 29 This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Let's pause here. Time is at a premium. The time is short. Paul wants that sentence to ring louder and louder in their ears. Paul's hesitancy concerning getting married is fundamentally eschatological. Garland says, Paul wants them to think eschatologically, but he's not trying to stir up eschatological hysteria. The reason you might want to pass on marriage is because it belongs to a world that is passing away. He's reminding them everything must be seen with an eschatological perspective. View marriage through the lens of Jesus coming back. Now, he wants marrieds to live this way as well. Verse 29 continues. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. I think it started raining. Did it start raining or did a roof fall in? It started raining. From now on, let those who have wives live, I want you to listen, men, let those who have wives live as, live as though they had none. Now, you men are thinking, I'm going to go home, not pick up my dirty socks, never put my dishes away, not clean my beard hair out of the sink, because Paul said, live like you have no wife. Well, you, you go and do that. Let me know how that works for you. Paul's intention with that statement is to make the reader mindful that marriage is a transient arrangement, not ultimate. Marriage is temporary. He highlights the impermanence of marriage. Live like you have no wife. He's using overstatement to illustrate that marriage is not ultimate. This statement shows you how you should take the rest of the statements. Verse 30. And those who mourn As though they were not mourning. Wallowing in your sadness could be a distraction from serving the Lord. You neutralize your sadness with the gospel. Emotions are more controllable than we sometimes think. Especially for Christians. Paul continues, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Now, this is not to be taken literally. You can never cry again. You can never smile again. This is not suggesting you should live void of the normal emotions of life. The point is, laughter and tears do not have the last word. You you are tempered by the sober assessments of the ups and downs of life. He continues, And those who buy as though they had no goods... Don't be preoccupied with your earthly purchases or accumulation of money, clothes, toys. Don't view any of those things like they are everything. Be detached from them. Whatever possessions you gain now are not permanent. Possessions will be gone. This text should color your view of possessions. Now let's, let's summarize this section Those who mourn are consumed by their grief. Those who are happy are preoccupied, and consumers are dazzled by their new possessions. Notice the flow of thought marriage is temporary, mourning and rejoicing over things on earth are temporary, possessions and life are temporary. Paul has told them reassess your marriage, reassess your mood. When gloomy or when glad, reassess your materialism. Verse 31. And those who deal with the world, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Here's what I found the world has a power to disarm and entangle. Paul mandates for them to continue to do business with the world, but don't be consumed with their consuming. Many a man has made his business with the world his God. Possess a holy indifference toward the pleasures of this life. Every day the world gets older. It is passing away. Believers must be careful not to become inordinately attached to the things that are passing away. This is not a call to be reckless, but a call not to lose perspective. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. Now, allow me to just go on an anxiety rant for a moment, would you? Anxiety takes root when we fail to see life with eternal perspective. Anxiety takes root when we fail to see life with an eternal perspective. Consider, in a thousand years, what will I think about this thing which causes me so much anxiety? We live in an anxiety-intoxicated culture, an anxious-addicted culture. We don't want to get over our anxiety because it is now part of our identity. We like the struggle. Paul does not here intend to eliminate care, as if you can arrive at at a carefree existence. He's simply pointing out that verse 32, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. Marriage tends to elicit anxieties. Married people are more entangled. Marriage often offers unique bundles of anxiety. It is easier for the single person because they can have a singular focus. They don't have to to support a wife and children. Ever the realist, Paul says, married people face some struggles that singles do not. Marriage imposes demands and responsibilities that cannot be neglected, that should not be neglected. They must pay attention to all kinds of things that distract them From pleasing the Lord, like putting food on the table in times of famine. When you get married, things change. Paul is realistically viewing the priorities of married life. You're pulled in two different directions. Your freedom is more reduced, your finances are more reduced. You can't just make a decision on a whim, the decision affects your spouse and children. You're immersed in family life. Marriage and children put a lot of demands on time. Sports practices, music lessons, and and money limits your giving. Verse 34, and his, that's the married man, and his interests are divided. The single can enjoy greater devotion to God. Their interest remains undivided. Singleness provides a practical advantage Paul says, I want you to live as free from complication as possible. Marriage divides your attention. The Christian single can encounter fewer distractions, fewer family responsibilities, undivided time to the Lord's work, undivided in mind, heart, and energy. Paul's point is that singleness is a blessing from the Lord in terms of responsibilities and undivided devotion. Singles have fewer distractions. They are unencumbered. Paul didn't have to worry about things as, as he bounced all over the Mediterranean world. He didn't have to worry about a wife or child. His missionary experience was not conducive to having a family. When a, when a, when a single guy wants to move... He just moves everything in 10 minutes. All his furniture just folds up. <laughs> Wives will not let you keep that furniture. Only furniture that weighs 1,000 pounds. <laughs> Singles have the freedom of early mornings and late nights. Single adults, your life is lighter. It gets heavier with marriage. It's a good weight. It just gets heavier. Your life is lighter, it gets heavier with marriage. It's a good weight, it just gets heavier. I had more time when I was single. Some of you, you you used to have a hobby before you got married. Not anymore, no time for that. I used to fish, now I put together Ikea furniture. Engaged person, ask. Am I prepared to enter this marriage for life? If anyone gets married after Paul counsels them or after the Sharons counsel them, they are called to this. (laughs) Verse 34 continues, And the unmarried and betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. You don't spurn marriage because you want freedom from obligation. That's what the cynics did. You choose not to marry so you can devote your life to the Lord. Like Amy Carmichael and Gladys Allward and Lottie Moon and many of the non-famous women in our church. You are undistracted in your affections. All your affections toward one direction. Paul continues Notice the comparison here, the unmarried woman to the married woman, verse 34. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. A married woman is rightly concerned about nurturing the relationship with her husband. It takes time and energy, and and it's an emotional load. Singleness has a purpose That must not be wasted. God does not have you single. So you can binge watch on Netflix. Or so you can wallow in your self pity. He has you single. So you can serve him with a wild freedom. Don't squander your singleness. Now let's review. And make sure we we all have the correct understanding. Marriage Does not prevent greater devotion to the Lord, and singleness does not guarantee it. But singleness has fewer hindrances and advantages, and more advantages. Singles have a strategic role in the kingdom of God. Remain single to serve the Lord undistracted. Now, here's a warning don't make your singleness your God. Well, I have these aspirations and marriage will get in the way of that. Wrong reason not to get married. John R. Stodd, famous pastor who never married, said, Apart from sexual temptation, the greatest danger which I think we as singles face is self-centeredness. We may live alone and have total freedom to plan our own schedule with nobody else to modify it or even give us advice. Let's look at verse 35. I say this for your own benefit. Paul insists he has their best interests at heart. Not to lay any restraint upon you. So he's not trying to throw a lasso over you. Put a legalistic noose around your neck. But to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. May this text lead many of you to decide to live your life in an undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul continues verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do what he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. Paul revisits these engaged couples in the church and reminds them, it's okay to marry. Now, I think it's it's crazy to have long engagements. When your passions, as the verse says, are burning. I'm against long engagements. Engagements are torture. That's not in the text. That's free. (laughs) But it's true. Paul reiterates, there is no reason for believers to obsess over their personal choice to stay single or get married. That is because neither choice is sinful. Verse 37. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. Now, you can't get the idea from this verse that it promotes a perpetual engagement. How long have you been engaged? Eight years? Just keeping someone? No. It's saying you do well not to go through with the marriage and call it off. That's what he's saying. Not all betrothals need to end in marriage. Not all engagements need to end in marriage. Verse 38. So then, he who marries is betrothed, so then he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Both options are acceptable. The advantages of remaining single are purely practical. Married Christians should not feel guilty for being married. They do well. If they marry, it was the Roman Catholic monks and nuns who believed that a celibate single life was morally and spiritually superior to getting married. Paul says, that's not true. Some early church fathers had a wrong view of marriage. Chrysostom said, virginity stands as far above marriage as the heavens stand above the earth. Jerome said, all those who have not remained virgins following the pattern of the pure chastity of angels and that of our Lord Jesus himself are polluted. Augustine maintains that marriage is not good but it is good in comparison to fornication. They all misunderstood Paul's writings. Verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives but if her husband dies She is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Now, the reverse is true here If if a wife dies and a husband is living. This applies to both sides. She is not forced to marry against her will. She marries if she wishes only in the Lord. This is a command to marry only Christians. She may remarry only if the second husband is a Christian. She expresses her Christian faith by marrying another slave to Jesus. Is this person committed to Christ and his church? Yes, yes. Go ahead. Verse 40 Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. Happier if she remains single. More blessed with less distractions by staying single. God had a season gifted. For for a season, God gifted this person with marriage. Now the Lord could be gifting this person with singleness for the rest of his life. Paul says, why don't you just give singleness the old college try? See if this is God's new assignment for this stage in your life. Don't rush back to the altar. Now, working backward in our text, remember the theme? Remain in the condition of your marital status, remain in the condition of your social status, remain in the condition of your ethnic status, be content with your assignment, lead the life the Lord has assigned to you. That's been the theme throughout the chapter. Now, the end of verse 40, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Now, I think that this is a touch of sarcasm. He says, church, I'm not shooting from the hip. The Spirit guides this counsel. Now, five closing applications geared towards certain groups of people. Five closing applications geared to certain groups of people. Application for widows and retirees. Don't pickleball your way to heaven. Don't pickleball your way to heaven. Don't think retirement, think realignment. How can you devote more time to serving your local church? How can you be more devoted to the church in this season as opposed to less devoted? Spend more time reading deep books. Spend more time diving into the depths of Scripture. Take young couples out to eat and give them godly counsel. Tell them things you wish someone in the church would have told you. Evangelize your grandchildren if you have them. Save money to send them on mission trips. Find a new place in the church to serve that you've never served before. Don't be comfortable in your retirement. Get out of your comfort zone. Read Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, with your spouse. You two never had the time to read a book together before, but now you do. Spend hours praying. Ask your pastors for a copy of the membership roll. Pray for those members. Pray scripture for them. Intercede for your pastors and their wives and their children. Hold the ropes in prayer for missionaries all around the world. You have hours to spend in prayer. Do it. You say, Kyle, what do you have against pickleball? (laughs) It fills your remaining days with things that you will not take into eternity. It fills your remaining days with things you will not take into eternity. Pickleball is just one of many things in which you can waste your retirement. The application for widows and retirees is don't pickleball your way to heaven. The application for you non-Christians is don't enjoy your way to hell. Staying single or getting married will not add to your standing in God. Being circumcised or going through decircumcision will not add to your standing in God. You can have a good job and a good spouse and still go to hell. You can do a lot of good things. Create a cure for cancer. Rescue someone from a burning building. Protect your country and the army and still die and go to hell. You can do religious practices like attend a service and still go to hell. You must see your sin as an assault on a holy and righteous God. Repent of that sin and put your faith in Christ for salvation. Application for married couples. Love the stranger to whom you are married. Love the stranger to whom you are married. This has been an encouraging sermon for married couples, hasn't it? It's <laughs> like You're thinking like, I made the wrong choice. Well, we know from last week, you can't, you can't follow through with those thoughts. The general cares of life can make marriage challenging. And some of you are in those challenging moments right now. You are right to be concerned about your spouse and children. God designed marriage so you could care for them and be concerned for them. You are not doing anything unbiblical when you care for the needs of your family. John Wesley, and I could list a a ton of missionaries that we pastors often put up before you as examples, who had horrible marriages. They would have been better off never to marry because they so neglected their family. Their marriage crashed and burned because they pursued God's work like they were single. They left a crying wife on her knees and embittered children watching dad leave not sure when he would ever return. Love your spouse in a way that portrays the gospel. Care for them. Let it take your time and energy and strength. This is God's design. Care for your spouse. Let it Take your time and energy and strength. This is by God's design. Now, you may wonder, Kyle, what do you mean by love the stranger to whom you are married? My wife has lived with four different men, they are all me. (laughs) We change, people change. When you look at your spouse, you are not looking at a finished product, but rather a block of marble. Sarah is not the woman I married. I am not the man she married. We are completely different people than the people that said I do 15 years ago. That's reality. People change. Hopefully for the better. Hopefully more gospel-centered, closer to the Lord. When I married Sarah, I did not marry a static person. Someone who would always be the exact same. Hurts mold you, battles form you, tragedy purifies you. They say, Kyle, I don't know the person laying next to me at night. Love the stranger to whom you are married, don't smother them under your perfect expectations, give them grace. And ask for grace in return. Old Charlie Spurgeon helps us with this passage. He says, Paul does not teach us to despise the marriage state. But he does teach us not to seek our heaven in it. Application for married. Love the stranger to whom you are married. Application for singles. Maximize the life to which you are entrusted. Maximize the life to which you are entrusted. Maximize your singleness for the spread of the gospel. Three times under the inspiration of God, this passage said, singleness is good. One single female missionary in Kenya wrote these words. Being single has meant that I am free to take risks that I might not take were I a mother of a family dependent on me. Being single has given me freedom to move around the world without having to pack up a household first. And this freedom has brought to me moments that I would not trade for anything else on this side of eternity. Now, let's hear from a single missionary in a different part of the world that that is a male. The first advantage to being single is that it's best adapted to perilous situations. In rugged life among primitive tribes... In gorilla-infested areas, in in disease and famine, the single man has only himself to worry about. Paul claims that being single best fits the shortness of the time. Doing God's work is a momentary thing. Advantages and opportunities come and go very quickly. And the single lifestyle enables one to give the most of his time that God has gifted. New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner wrote a really old article, I don't know if you can ever find it, entitled, Single and Satisfied in God. Single and Satisfied in God. Your singleness may not take you to the mission field, but it should take you to the place of being satisfied in God. Last application, application for parents. Children do not keep you from serving the Lord. (laughs) Children do not keep you from serving the Lord. Some of you hear stories of these single missionaries reaching neglected tribes, bringing the gospel to them, and you think, I'm not doing anything valuable like that. Wrong. God has given you your own little savage tribe to reach. (laughs) They are called your children. And reach that savage tribe for God's glory. Your children... Your children are God's gift to you. Do not make them idols. Because this is what we tend to do with God's gifts. Your children are a gift to you. Do not make them idols. Don't allow them or their activities to keep you from being devoted to the Lord's church. If you do, it is your fault, not theirs. Love your, your kids Let them see you serving the church. Bring them along as you serve. God never intended for children to hinder your service. They are spectators of your service. Children do not keep you from serving the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, you are our shepherd and we shall not want Teach us what it means to live out this text. All of life for all of you. Amen.